Good morning, Shabbat Shalom, and welcome. I'm Ross, and I'm happy to be here with you this morning. Thank you very much for taking of your time this weekend and joining me live. If, by the way, you are with me live, I want to remind you that at the end of this class, there will be a Zoom discussion, only if you're live. If you come in, you watch it later, thank you for watching, but you won't be able to participate in the Zoom this week. However, if you come in later and you watch it and you say, wow, I wish I would have been there, be here next week early enough to do it. I also have one other thing. I have a sheet. It is in the notes. It's in the description of this video. Don't, uh, don't panic if you can't get it because our creative director has worked out another way to demonstrate what I'm going to share with you from this sheet. However, if you find yourself listening to it again, taking notes and studying the material from today's class, don't forget in the comments below, there is a sheet on this particular subject. You will need that to follow it very closely. We are presently in an ongoing study of Isaiah, not just the book of Isaiah, although that is a part of what we're doing, but also we're dealing with and bringing in other texts that shed light on not only the book of Isaiah, but the life and times of Isaiah ben Amotz. Isaiah ben Amotz, the 8th century BCE prophet. And uh, so we use more than just the book of Isaiah. We use the historical books. What do we know from the book of Kings and Chronicles uh, about the life and times of this particular prophet? Because we're dealing with a reign or, or a period of four kings' reigns. And those would be Uziah, Yotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So we're dealing with a historical period when we're dealing with Isaiah that puts us in the reign of one or more than one of those particular kings. The difficulty, I would say, or the greatest difficulty for students of the book of Isaiah, and, and really this applies beyond just the book of Isaiah, to the Bible as a whole is uh, that it, it becomes difficult to put things chronologically. If we pick up our biblical text and we assume that everything is laid out from A to Z, or as my Australian buddy Jonah would say, A to Z, whatever that is, then you, you're going to find yourself confused. What we have to do is we have to look for internal clues that help us to chronologically orient ourselves. And so part of the reason that we're doing these deep dives, these in-depth studies in the prophets is because I want to help, uh, help us to work through some of that difficulty, particularly in chronologic, uh, chronological ordering. Now, some of the Isaiah material is actually not so difficult to put chronologically. Some of it gives itself away just by simple reading. For instance, if you carefully, now carefully is the key word here, if you carefully read from Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah chapter 66, you're going to find yourself coming to the conclusion that that material is very likely, and I'm being kind, very likely well beyond the days of Isaiah. We don't encounter any of the historical figures in the 8th century BCE when we deal with chapters 40 through 66, we are pulled forward 
way forward uh, into a much later time. The only historical personality that we meet is a man in Hebrew known as Koresh, in most English translations as Cyrus. But Isaiah 40 through 66 is not the focus of our class. We are focusing in this series on chapters 1 through 39, which for the most part put us in that 8th century BCE period. Now, if we begin to break down, and this is just a quick overview before I get into the content of today's class, if we were to read from Genesis, uh, from Genesis, no, if we were to read from Isaiah chapter 1 through Isaiah chapter 39 and put tick marks placing certain chapters or sections of chapters into the proper chronological order by the king that they are that they are assigned to, eh, here's what we have. Now these are obvious. These are mentioned. Isaiah chapter 6 is going to put us in the time of Uzziah, all right? In the year that Uzziah died, uh, Yotam, we don't have anything. I said we don't have anything that specifically puts us in the days of Yotam. Other clues might, but no textual declaration, no sign-off, no signature, no mention of Yotam. Ahaz, okay, I would put chapter 7 through 10 in the days of Ahaz. I would also put uh, one text that clearly names Ahaz, and that is Isaiah 14, 28. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 28 says, in the year that Ahaz died. So there you go. It puts us at that time. Uh, but we're going to get into Isaiah 14 in another class. The whole chapter does not uh, associate, you can't associate the whole chapter with the reign of Ahaz, because some of it is in the Babylonian period. It's late. If we look at uh, chapter 20 and chapters 36 through 39, obviously those plug in to the days of Hezekiah. Now, other material in Isaiah can be placed in a certain piece of that chronologically. In other words, other clues, other external clues and internal to the book clues help us to put more of it, so it's not so hopeless. But this is the goal. This is the goal. Now, if I look at chapter 1 of Isaiah, you would think that Isaiah chapter 1 might be, just a guess, might be the beginning of the prophetic career of Isaiah. But I would place it later. I would place it later. And why would I do that? Because the language tells me to. If Isaiah 1 mentioned, hey, this is in the days of Uzziah or Yotam, then I would place it at the beginning. But it doesn't. In fact, it gives clues that push me beyond. Look with me this morning. We're going to begin in Isaiah 1, Isaiah 1 and verses 7 through 9. Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 7, and it says... <clears throat> Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire. As for your fields, strangers are devouring them in front of you. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, 
like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a city under watch. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Now, the counter to this claim that this is late uh, would be someone would say, yeah, 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 but it's a vision, see, Ross. He's projecting what he's writing here in chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, is a projection of something he sees in his prophetic vision. Uh, but that contextually doesn't quite work, at least for me. You're happy, I'm happy if you believe that, uh, and it's okay. But it seems to me the most logical way to read this is that the prophet is looking out the window, so to speak, and he sees devastation, all right? Now, uh, if we look at, and by the way, if you follow the white spaces, the breaks, uh, we begin to see other clues as to when this might be. I'm not going to read uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, but let me just tell you quickly a little bit about that. <clears throat> this is a condemnation of the cult, and by cult, I mean in a generic sense, the sacrificial system. It is a condemnation of that system. Uh, very, very harsh, critical language uh, of the worship uh, that is associated with that. Now, some would say, and this is what most say, some would say, no, it's not a critique of the cult. It's simply a condemnation of the lack of the proper approach or the proper attitude of the worshiper. It really is nothing to do with a criticism of the cult. Well, I would suggest you read that, but read that on your own time. For this class, we're going to go right over that, and we're going to pick up in verse 16, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And by the way, this is the conclusion of the condemnation of the cult. It is within the contextual breakdown, uh, but, but listen, wash yourselves Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Obtain justice for the orphan. Plead for the widow's case. So what we see is a juxtaposition, a contrast, and Isaiah is big about this. Quite often, we'll see something very negative uh, a condemnation followed by what do you need to do to fix it, okay? Uh, and now we're just going to roll into verse 18, picking up here. <clears throat> Isaiah 1, 18 and, uh, through 23. Come now, let us debate your case, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. By the way, this particular passage was later used, particularly in Second Temple Judaism, associated with a, uh, a custom that came up associated with the festival of Yom HaKippurim, uh, known popularly as Yom Kippur, but Yom HaKippurim, one of the goats, remember the two goats? Uh, one of the horns 
on the Azazel goat. They tied a red ribbon around the goat's horn. And the hope and the prayer and the magical thing that supposedly happened, according to the Talmud, is that if the sins of the people were forgiven, that red ribbon turned white. And they would take that goat away into the wilderness as described in the text. And, and, uh, and there the sins of the people would be placed on that goat and it would be led off. The problem was that goat kept coming back. And that's a bad omen. If you're walking in the street and the goat comes back and the horn, the ribbon on the horn is still red, that's scary. So what did they do? They decided to stop the goat from coming back. So they would fling it off the cliff. Again, this is not biblical. But the idea, one of the verses that they would use to describe this, uh, this phenomenon is that you're, uh, though your sins are scarlet, they'll turn white. And by the way, this week, uh, if you're listening to this live, Jono and I will be talking about Azazel. Azazel. We're going to go into that subject at great depth. All right, I'm going to continue to read uh, verse 20. <clears throat> We're still on uh, Isaiah 1, 18 through 23. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a prostitute. She who was full of justice, mishpat, righteousness, sedekah, once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become waste matter. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after gifts. They do not obtain justice for the orphan, nor does the widow's case come before them. And that concludes the section, The White Spaces. In verse 21... of Isaiah 1, the sharp critique is that in this place, once there dwelt justice and righteousness, Mishpat and Zedekiah. But now that has been replaced with murders. This is, you can't get any further, uh, any more contrasted than that. It was holy, it is wicked as hell now. That's the message of Isaiah here in Isaiah chapter 1. And because of that, Isaiah's uh, first chapter, although it is not, I don't believe, it is not at the very beginning of his prophetic career. I would push it beyond Uziah for sure and probably beyond Yotam. So we're looking at, you know, almost 20 years into the prophetic career of Isaiah, and there are other reasons I would push it that far. But what he says is, ultimately, a day of reckoning is coming, and then the chapter continues through verse 31 to one of the most beautiful visions of Isaiah, words for which Isaiah is well known in every walk of life, rather religious or secular, And it is Isaiah chapter 2, and I want to begin, I just want to kick off and read verse 1 to give you a little bit of context. Isaiah 2, 1, chapter 2, verse 1, 
the word which Isaiah the son of Amot saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, the language here, it's interesting because we only get like three uh, three cues in the text that say these are the words of Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, which says these are the words which Isaiah, the vision, the chazon which Isaiah uh, saw uh, in the days of Uziah, Yotam, Achaz, Hezekiah. Then we get in chapter 2, this is the word, Hadavar, Hadavar Shechazah Yeshiyahu bin Amotz. This is the word which uh, Isaiah envisioned <coughs> uh, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So it, we're going we're gonna to get this clue. By the way, the other text which says these are the words of Isaiah comes from um, uh, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 13, 1. What, what we want to do now is I want to look at Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 2, and we're going to... I'm going to show you something in just a moment. What follows this Isaiah chapter 2 verse 1 announcement that this concerns Judah and Jerusalem is a prophecy that looks forward, way forward into a future idyllic age, okay? It's idyllic, um, and but the problem is there's no real strong clue within the text to tell us when it's spoken. If I already have suggested that Isaiah chapter 1 is probably not the beginning, it's not Uziah, it's not Yotam, it must be at least in the days of Achaz. And if I look at chapter 2 and I feel like it's the same way, can I find textual cues which put me a little closer to identifying What's going on around Isaiah in his world that helps him create or that lets God give him this vision? God's working with what is going on in Isaiah's mind, you see. Isaiah's looking around and God gives him this vision is the way it's presented. But it's not only Isaiah chapter 2, even though it doesn't really give us any cues, it doesn't help us much. Is this at the beginning of his prophetic career, in the middle, or at the end? There's one thing that might help us, and that is that Isaiah is not the only one that sees this vision. There's someone else at the same time, in the same place, who sees almost the exact same vision. I want you to think about this. It's presented, this is the way the text presents it, that we have Isaiah, and as we've covered in previous classes, you have other prophets prophesying at the same time. Who are they? Hosea in the north. We know that Hosea in the north is prophesying primarily to the north uh, and about the north, but it's during the same king's reigns. You read Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, and you see that. Amos is very specific. Amos is actually in the days of Uziah, two years, uh, within two years of the great earthquake. So we can date that pretty clearly. And there is another prophet. There is another prophet who not only is operating at the same time as Isaiah, 
he also is in Jerusalem. He also is prophesying in part about Judah and Jerusalem, and he sees the exact same thing. His name is Micah. His name is Micah. Now, these two prophets had a vision that is almost identical. You can see before your eyes that if you look at Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, and you look at Micah chapter 4, and you compare these side by side. Now, what we have here, and by the way, this on the screen is what you will see on the sheet. What I've got in the English is the New American Standard Version, and I also include on the sheet the Hebrew side by side. And by the way, the, uh, the ASV is fairly close in representing what we see. Now, we're going to work through these two prophecies. These, it's almost like I was trying to think of a name. Uh, Seth and I talked about this late last night, trying to come up with, what do you call this? It's, it's almost one idea that we proposed. It's a double vision, you know, having a cute little play off of that term. But it's, it's really a singular vision. So double vision doesn't work unless you consider the fact that two prophets are beholding the same thing. So it is a singular vision through the eyes of two distinct prophets. And here's what they see. Uh, by the way, this document is also found in our, uh, uh, our Discord channel. We have a Discord channel. That, too, is in the link in the description. A link to that is in the description of this class on the YouTube channel. So if we work through this, now don't get too confused over the slightly different English. Give you an example. Isaiah 2.2 says, And it shall come to pass in the latter days... Micah says, but in the latter days it shall come to pass. Let me tell you what the Hebrew says. Exactly the same. In the Hebrew of Micah and Isaiah, it says uh, the exact same thing. That in the Acherit Hayamim, in the latter days, in the latter days, that the mountain of Jehovah's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. This is almost exact. There are a couple of slightly different uh, word order arrangements. Like, so, so, for instance, where it says uh, that the Jehovah's house shall be established. In Hebrew, it's nachon. Some of you know the word nachon. It means right, right. Like if you're in Israel and you're talking, somebody goes, uh, nachon? You go, yeah, yeah, that's right, nachon. Well, it's established, it's right. Well, there's a slightly different placement of the word nachon. I'm not going to worry about that. It's, it's the same. Now, but what we find, though, is as we work through this, there's one significant difference in Isaiah and Micah's vision. They're both looking out windows in Jerusalem. They both see the mountain of Jehovah's house shall be established and exalted above the hills. They both see that. They both see nations 
flowing, but wait. No, they don't. One sees nations. I see goyim, Gentiles. I see goyim flowing to the mountain. And the other prophet sees peoples. In other words, they use a different word. It's almost like Isaiah says, I see Gentiles flowing to this mountain. What do you see, Micah? And Micah says, well, you know, I, I'm not so sure they're Gentiles. I'm not sure they're goyim. Well, who, what are they then? They're Amim, they're people, but they may not be Gentiles. I have reason to believe that there is a reason that they see slightly differently here. We'll get into that later. So the idea is that, one, it's, it's interesting because when Isaiah sees goyim, Micah sees amim. Isaiah says, I see Gentiles. Micah says, eh, I wouldn't call them Gentiles. I'd just say they're people. And then they swap. And, and so it's like every time one sees people, the other sees Gentiles, and it swaps. It's not like one prefers. Not like Isaiah, every time he sees this group flowing to the mountain, he goes, up. Oh, that's Gentiles. It's back and forth. You'll see this in the text. Uh, Seth has done a great job highlighting the differences between the Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 so that you wouldn't have to leave this engaging instruction to go download a document. So look at these. Look how they're distinct on the screen before you. So here we go. Let me go through it. And many people, or Gentiles, shall go and say, what will they say? Come ye. Let us go up to the mountain of Jehovah, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths. For out of Zion, this is a famous phrase, because, because from Zion, Torah goes forth Torah, Udavar Yehovah, Mirushalayim and the word of Jehovah from Jerusalem. That's why they're going. They say these Gentiles are people, whatever they are. They, they're not Israeli. They're not, they're, let, me, let me correct myself. They're not Judeans. They're not Judeans. And so they look different to the two prophets. They don't look like the people that they see. But this is future. Who are these people who are going? And what are they doing? Isaiah and Jeremiah both hear them talking. And these people say, hey, let's go up. Because, let's go up, why? Because we're going to go because the God of Jacob will teach us his ways. Can you imagine? And he, goes on, will judge between the nations. Micah says many people. And we'll decide, Isaiah says, concerning many people. Uh, Micah says, concerning strong nations afar off. See, one of them, Isaiah just says, I see many people now. And Micah says, hold on, Isaiah. Hold on, Yeshiahu. Look closely, Isaiah, because these are concerning uh, many strong Gentiles from way away from here. You see the difference? They're both, but they see the same thing. Now watch this. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And the world said, hallelujah, amen. This is a beautiful image of a world right. 
And there you have the distinction between these two who saw the same vision, slightly different details, but truly, this is a remarkable vision. Now, let me tell you one thing about this as we continue. Uh, this has not happened yet. And we're going to talk about when was the when when were these visions shown to both Isaiah and Micah? Uh, but I can tell you now, this has not happened. And I think anyone uh, with any bit of sense and the ability to read would agree. We are going to look now at Micah chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, because Isaiah, uh, what we have on the chart and what Seth displayed on the screen in Micah uh, isn't quite finished yet. We have two more verses. His vision includes within the white spaces of this pericope, this, this prophecy, this saying that Isaiah didn't see. So I'm going to read now. Micah 4, uh, verse 4 and 5. Uh, and by the way, this, this follows. So let me pick it up where it says, they'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hook. Nation will not lift a sword against nation. Never again will they learn war. Ain't gonna learn war no more, no more, no more. And then it says, instead, instead of that, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, no one to make them afraid, because the mouth of Jehovah of armies has spoken. Though all the people walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. What? This future prophecy, the glimpse that Micah gives us is that this, at this time, there will be peace. Peace uh, explained as everyone sitting under his own vine and fig tree. And it's interesting that it says, each will walk in the name of his own God. Now, I've taught this before, and somebody says, no, in the future, they will all know the name of the Lord, and you know, you have to look at, Ross, you have to read Zechariah 8, uh, verse 23. You have to consider Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. Like, I don't know these texts. I do know them. You know them. However, this seems to suggest that one of the reasons for the peace is that there aren't these Taliban groups who force religion and their version of religion on others. This is the image. Each will walk in the name of his God, but we, the Judeans, according to Micah, you would assume that's who he's talking about, the people of Israel will walk in the name of yod heh vav -Hey, their God. Now, well, this image of sitting under a vine and a fig tree, I want you to see that this is a biblical image from the biblical period that indicates total peace. Peace. Look at 1 Kings 5.5. 5. In the Hebrew, it's, uh, let me see, in the English, it is uh, 4.25. And in the Hebrew, it's 5.5. 5. So 1 Kings 5.5. 5. And here we go. Let me get my Bible to cooperate. 
So Judah, so Judah and Israel lived securely. Everyone under his vine and his fig tree from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. So we get the image, the image that the writer wants us to see is that in the days of Solomon, it was peaceful. You go, how peaceful was it? So let me tell you, let me tell you, if you look out, if you look out across the landscape, what what you'll see is that everyone is sitting under his vine and his fig tree. Now, first of all, that indicates also prosperity in, in some sense. Everyone has a place to sit that has a vine and a fig tree to sit under. But this is the image of idyllic peace when the biblical writers want to tell us what that peace looks like. Now, there's something else um, maybe very much related to these days. So we show in Micah chapter 4, he does see a little bit more than Isaiah gives us in Isaiah chapter 2. In Micah 4, he says, ah, I also see uh, I also see something here, Isaiah, where there's this idyllic peace and so forth. So, but, but is there something else in the text that ties vine and fig tree, the offer of peace? Like if you're going to offer peace to the Judeans at the time, what would you say? You would say, let me tell you, I'm going to paint a picture for you here of idyllic peace. How about I, how about I make it happen that you can sit under your own vine and your fig tree? What Micah says is, hold on, God offers this peace plan of sitting under the vine and fig tree. We have to wait for it. But what if I can show you that that offer was made by someone else? You know, a lot of times when we see rulers, we see leaders make promises that they know make people feel like, oh, I like this plan. I like that this politician or this leader can offer me this. I think I'll go push that person's name in the booth and they'll bring it in. They usually can't. In fact, most of the time they can't. But, but God says that this is a day coming. This idyllic peace is coming. But I want to show you something. Another offer was made, uh, and I want you to look at it with me. And this occurs in two texts, Isaiah, as, I'm sorry, 2 Kings 18, 31, and Isaiah 36, 16. That's because a lot of 2 Kings from 18 to 20 is uh, also part of Isaiah chapter 36, 37, 38, 39. Uh, that section is almost word for word. Either the writer of Kings borrowed from Isaiah or the writer of Isaiah who put together the final version of Isaiah incorporated those historical documents. Uh, but you can pick either one because they say the same thing. So I'm going to go with 2 Kings 18, and I just want to read uh, 31. Now let me tell you, who is this? This is uh, Rob Shika. Rob Shika is, he's been sent, uh, it's actually in Hebrew, it's Rav, uh, Rav Shache. Rav Shache is sent to uh, sort out 
the problems in Judea and to kind of handle the aftermath of all the bad that's taken place there. Uh, and this is actually leading up to uh, the Assyrian onslaught, if you will. So in verse 31, um, Rav Shakeh says, don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't listen to Hezekiah. For this is what the king of Assyria says. So Rav Shakeh brings a message from the Assyrian king. He says this, make your peace with me. He's talking to the Judeans. Make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each one from his vine and from his fig tree and drink each one the waters of his own cistern. So the offer is, don't, don't listen to Hezekiah. Hezekiah is going to fill you full of all kinds of things, and, and uh, he's going to cause you to get in trouble. What I'd prefer, this is straight, I bring a message from the king of Assyria. We're going to win this. We're going to win it. Best thing you can do is come out. And if you do, this whole vision of the fig tree and the vine, it's yours. You got to trust me, though. You got to trust me. Meanwhile, Micah is saying, oh, hold on, hold on. I see the vision of the vine and the fig tree too, but it, it, that, mm-mm, see? Now, what we look at when we see this, we, we have to ask ourselves, could this be an indication of when this prophecy takes place? And I say yes. In other words, I see that the dual offers of peace, both employing the idyllic language of uh, sitting under a vine and fig tree, it, it's like you've got the good and the bad. You've got one voice here, Rav Shachay is the Assyrian voice saying, eh, I got some vines and fig trees. Micah's saying, in days to come, in the latter days, you see. Do you want it now? Do you think you, you need to take it now, or should you wait? Remember, they that wait upon the Lord. See, the prophets often talk about this. It, though it tarry, though it tarry, though it tarry, wait, wait, wait. And a lot of times, we don't in our personal life like to wait either. Now, we can't be 100% sure. We can't be 100% sure, but the evidence leads me to put this particular prophecy, this prophetic parallel, as we call this class, we, we put the prophetic parallel in the days of Hezekiah. In particular, it's very close to the offer of Rav Shakeh. It's very close to the order uh, of the Assyrians. So I would put it in Hezekiah's time. Furthermore, furthermore, the end of Isaiah chapter 1 leading into this period of Isaiah 2 and the exaltation that is to come one day of the Lord's house, etc. Right before you get to that, before the white space, leading up to it, there is a threat of potential destruction. In other words, that's in the future. You got to wait for it, but it's in the future. But leading up to that, guess what? This place is going down. It's going to be destroyed, I'm pretty sure, you see. It's like, I'm almost positive. It's, it's, you're, not, you're headed towards destruction. That's what the prophet says. 
Now, and then he then he he gives this beautiful picture of what ultimately is to come. Micah does the same thing. But right before we get Micah chapter 4, the prophecy, the dual prophecy, the prophecy that Isaiah saw and Micah saw, right before you get to Micah, he also says it's going to be destroyed. Did you know that? So not only can we place these chronologically at the same time and show that two prophets, at least according to the way the Bible's presented, two prophets give the same prophecy. If we go right before that in both of these prophets, do you know that we see that both of them threaten destruction? By the way, if we go after, do you know that we can see the birth of a child? We'll get to that. But right before, right before it prophetically pictures some beautiful day coming, Micah precedes his with a threat. He precedes his vision of what is to come with a threat. And it's very specific. Not only does he say Jerusalem or this place will be destroyed, he tells us something that Isaiah doesn't see. What is it? Let's go to Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3, verse 9. Micah 3, beginning in verse 9. I'm going to read through verse 12. Now, Shemul Nazot, listen please to this. I like the way it starts. I'm telling you to do the same. Now hear this. You heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who despise justice and twist everything that's straight. Remember, Isaiah said they lost their focus on justice too. They're both seeing this. Who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with malice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. Her prophets divine for money. Yes, they lean on the Lord saying, is the Lord not in our midst? Catastrophe will not come on us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. Anybody ever been to the Temple Mount? You can still pluck leaves off of that place. Full of trees. This particular prophecy, Micah tells the people of his day that the temple will be destroyed. Notice when, when he says the, the mountain of the house, Har Bait, that's the exact same thing that is mentioned following in his vision of what will come. So Micah sees a destruction of the current house. He says that it's going to Zion's going to be plowed like a field, Jerusalem's going to be a heap of ruins and and this mountain, this house mountain that you have or mountain of the house whatever you want to call it, the Har Habit, it's going to be like a place for uh, a forest he didn't say in kids playing soccer, but that's another thing, okay? But what, what it is that he sees is that it's going to be destroyed before it is the vision that he sees. This is, 
Akarit Hayamim. He and Isaiah see a vision way into the future. And between then and then, the one that he's looking at that time will be destroyed. Now, do you think that message is popular? I, I promise you, it is not. I promise you that to tell the Jerusalem leadership that this place is going to be destroyed is not very popular. That destruction will come to the Temple Mount. Now, Micah, if we only had Micah, we wouldn't know. Micah doesn't give us any textual clues um, as to when this predicted the predicted destruction was made. I don't, in other words, I don't know when this is made. Is chapter three chronologically in the right place? I'd say it is, and I think it is because of the linguistic connection and a couple of other things that are very important. And in order to show you when this prophecy was spoken, we're going to narrow it down. I want to show when did Isaiah have this prophecy because it helps us chronologically put the book together, first of all, but it also helps us to put the future together. It really does. But I, I can't look at, Isaiah's not going to tell me when this prophecy came with any great detail, nor is Micah. For that, I have to trust another prophet. But it's no big deal. It happens to be my favorite prophet. Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah chapter 26 and verse 16. Now, in Jeremiah 26, verse 16, Jeremiah is in a heap of trouble. You know what a heap of means? A heap of trouble, one word. He is, he's up to his neck. They want to kill Jeremiah. The leadership wants to kill Jeremiah, particularly the priesthood. They hate them some Jeremiah because Jeremiah has challenged everything that pays their bills. He challenges the sacrifices, the whole cult to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7. By the way, Jeremiah 26 and Jeremiah 7 are a package deal. They both describe an event where Jeremiah is told by Jehovah, go stand in the court of the temple. This is like right dead center of the action, and you're going to tell him this, thus says the Lord, uh, on the day that God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he didn't command Israel concerning sacrifice and offering. That's Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 21 through 25. When I tell you, when Jeremiah said that, these people began to foam at the mouth, clench their teeth. They wanted to kill Jeremiah because he said, not only should this place go down, and it will go down, he predicts the fall of the temple, but he says, you've made this place a den, it says in English, a den of robbers. In Hebrew, the word is, uh, it's like a ravenous beast because it's full of bloodshed. They're ripping they're all this sacrificial cult. He is letting them know this place is going to go down. Now, 7 and 26 go together. He's put on trial. He's, he's brought, charges are brought against him because he describes the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. So we're talking roughly about 608 BCE when this takes place. And so look at verse 20, uh, chapter 26, verse 16. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, somebody steps up for Jeremiah. Listen to what they say. 
no death sentence for this man because he's spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then some of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people saying, hey, they didn't say that, I did. Micah of Morasheth used to prophesy in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And he, Micah, by the way, Micah of Morasheth, that's Micah 1.1 says, this is the same guy. He used to prophesy. Uh, here It says, he spoke to all the people of Judah, Micah did, saying, this is what the Lord of armies has said. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house like the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah actually put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and plead for the favor of the Lord, and the Lord relented of the disaster which he had pronounced against them? But we are committing a great evil against our own lives. Somebody's smart. Somebody steps up for Jeremiah, and thankfully this episode is recorded in Jeremiah because it helps us to understand that Micah was letting the people know that the temple's going to be destroyed. Well, guess what? That's exactly the message Jeremiah is saying. And Jeremiah, the, somebody stands up and says, wait a minute, whoa, 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 boys, boys, back up. I remember a story, it's over a hundred years ago, but I remember a story that another prophet named Micah said this, and let me tell you, they wanted to kill him too, but they didn't, and when they didn't, they didn't, it changed the course. So the, the point of this brave person who steps in front of the mouth-foaming people who hate and want to kill Jeremiah, this brave person who says this saves the day temporarily. Jeremiah is not killed. Now, what we do find is that during the days of Hezekiah, and this is supported by the text, Hezekiah is presented with some very negative consequences that could be on the horizon and we get examples of Hezekiah seeking God's favor in these situations. And because of that, the outcome is very positive. The words of Micah, however, that go back to the days of Hezekiah, they were ultimately fulfilled. Zion was plowed like a field. Jerusalem became a heap of ruins. And if you go to Israel with me, we're going to go on the Temple Mount. We're going to go on that very place. And although you're not supposed to pluck a leaf, some have been known to do that secretly. You don't want to get arrested, though. The Temple Mount became a bamot, a high place, of woods, a wooded high place is really what it became. But two prophets, Isaiah and Micah, Isaiah and Micah saw the latter days. They saw the Akarit Hayamim. 
They saw the destruction of the house that stood in their day, and they saw a restored house. Let me tell you something about this restored house. I think Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, the second Isaiah, mentions what the second house is going to be like, a house of prayer for all nations. You know, Isaiah 66 is also to be brought in. Read verses 1 through 4 of Isaiah 66. But the vision they saw not only had a destruction of this house, according to Micah, another house that's exalted, the, the mountain of the Lord's house is exalted, and nations, or Gentiles, flowing to it. What are they flowing to this house for? They want to learn the ways of the Lord. That's what's going on there. There is a teaching. A Torah is tetzet Torah. The Torah is going forth right there. It's going to be, that's why they're going. They're going to learn his ways and to walk in his paths. What are God's ways? Now, you could, you could list off all sorts of things, but, you know, Genesis 18, 19, go there, because Genesis 18, 19 really sums it up beautifully. I mean, it's probably the most succinct definition for the ways of God. It says, For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. What is that? What is it? What is the way of the Lord? You ready? Doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. You know, a lot of people try to define the way of God. You know, I, I follow the way. What is the way? Well, very simply, it's righteousness and justice. Sedekah and mishpat. Now, each of those clearly represent a lot of material. But justice and righteousness. You, you see, what the message of Isaiah and Micah is, is that in their day, the people had lost their way. The people and the place, the town, Jerusalem, has lost its way. And, and more specifically, lost their connection to God's way. One more time, look at Isaiah 1, 18, verse 18 through 23. Isaiah 1, 18. Come now and let us debate your case, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall become white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. How the faithful city has become a prostitute. She who was full of justice, righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murders. Your silver has become waste matter. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after gifts. They don't obtain justice for the orphan, nor does the widow's case come before them. You know what the condemnation is? You know what brought down the commonwealth of both Israel and Judea? Wicked rebellion. 
a forsaking of the ways of God at its core. Justice and righteousness are no more. This place used to be full of it, says Isaiah. And now, this whole city is a harlot. And it's filled with murderers. They, don't, they no longer know the way of God. But in the last days, in the last days, there is a vision to come, a vision, I can see it now. Here's what it is. That justice and righteousness will go forth because God will teach the nations, the people. That's what learning will be about at that place, at that time. They won't learn war anymore. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. They're going to turn implements of war into farming tools. God teaching his ways and war not taught anymore. Now, by the way, this is considered a messianic prophecy without a Messiah. There's no Messiah in here. We'll get into that in another class. This prophecy, this parallel prophecy seen by Isaiah and Micah, has yet to be fulfilled. So far, the Har Habait, the mountain of the house, really is still sort of a, a, um, a high place, a bamot with trees. And it's been 2,700 years. Whew. Though it tarry, wait for it. Isaiah and Micah, by the way, mention after this. Notice the order is the same. They predicted a destruction. They predict a house that's yet to be realized. And they also predicted the birth of a child. Now, I'm not going to read Micah 5, 1 through 5 at this point, but you read it. Because that's where Micah saw the child. And it's right after, notice Micah 5 comes after Micah 4. Micah 4 talks about this. Uh, coming house and then this child. Hmm. But I do want to read Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, verse 5. Go with me there. This is what Isaiah saw. Because a child is born to us, a son given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Pele Yoetzel Gibor Aviad Sar Shalom. Translated variously, some translations, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Doesn't mean the child is God. It means that the child's name is declaring the wonder, the counsel, the uh, might of that God, and so forth. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Ready? 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it, get this, with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Isaiah didn't give up hope on the Davidic monarchy. He felt that there would be a king, a descendant of David, who would reign in justice and righteousness. Let's look at one more text. Go with me to Isaiah 16, Isaiah 16 in verse 5. This is another uh, passage which declares Isaiah's hope. A throne will be established in faithfulness, and a judge will sit on it in trustworthiness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. You see, the image that Isaiah had, the image that Micah had, is that in their day, there was no justice, there was no righteousness, it was wickedness all around them. See, God gave them a glimpse. Look ahead. Look ahead. Look closely. And what do you see? You see, Isaiah even saw the he sees a future kingdom, a throne in justice and righteousness. But you know what else he sees? He sees that the house of David has become, in a vision he sees, as a stump. It's cut off. Isaiah sees that the tree has been severed. But wait. Wait, I see a sprout. It's coming from the severed trunk. But for that, you have to join me next week, same time, same place. And if you're here with me right now live, don't forget, we're about to be in a Zoom call. You can ask your questions. You can fire off comments. You can, uh, you know, give your input into this. The only rule is that you're sweet, you're nice, uh, and that you, uh, you don't come in just to stir up trouble. So I'll see you in just a few minutes in the Zoom call. Shabbat Shalom, Shavuotov.